Business Women Rock, episode 60. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's going on, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. I've got a great show for you, so let's get right into it. Today's guest is Gail Federici, who's the founder of Federici Brands. Now, you may not know Gail's name exactly, but you definitely know the companies that she's been involved with. She was partners with John Frieda, the hair care hairstylist specialist that you know so many of the products with his name on it. What you may not know is that Gail was actually his business partner and was part of the integral force that made the John Frieda product brand a global company. She has so much great experience within the hair care industry. She is the girl who had the idea for Frizz Ease. Oh my goodness. I was so excited when I was going to talk to her and just tell her thank you. Uh, anyway, so she has since, they sold that company and she has since started her own company. She's got a great story just of all of the business knowledge that she has accumulated all over these years. And she uh, is so gracious in sharing that with us today. So Turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Gail, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're here because I'm so curious about the businesses that you've been involved with and about the business that you're building right now. And so I really want to get under the hood with how you've really done that. So one of the really interesting things to me is that you were actually partners with John Frieda in the whole John Frieda professional hair care business. And I think that many of us women know about frizzies. I was telling you before, I was like, that's the product I know. I remember that product. It saved my life when I was in high school. In order for us to really talk about Federici Brands and what you're doing with your current business, I really would love to get an understanding of really where you came from as a businesswoman. So let's start before you actually partnered with John Frieda. What were you like? What, what did life look like for you before 1989 when you and John Frieda started the company? AC and BC for me, because before kids, I think I was um, not the most driven. I was interested in a lot of different things. I majored in English. I studied French. I traveled to Europe a bit. I wanted to become fluent in French. Never did. Had to come back. My mother got sick and went to law school. At night, I worked during the day for a company that was a hair care company, actually, in the trade. And that's really, I was 29 years old when I went to law school. And I was going at night. I was working at the hair care company during the day. And I really got very involved in the company, which was Zotos. They made perms for the trade. And I wound up working with hairdressers around the country, helping to educate them in our products. I co-wrote a haircutting book with one of the creative designers that we worked with. And so I got into the beauty business at around 29, 30 years old. The company was bought maybe seven years later by another company in the hair business called Conair. They mostly made hair dryers. Yeah, and I, I, was in, I think I still have it, a Conair yeah. hair dryer. <laughs> and then they expanded into many, many different areas, kitchen appliances, whatever. And I was in charge of 
vice president of corporate communications, which was PR, advertising, still the education of the hairdressers that worked for the company. And I was working there for about three years, and I decided with a friend of mine who worked there that I wanted to start my own advertising agency because I had been working in hair so long. And in in the art department, we were uh, creating packaging ideas, naming products, and I had just been doing the same thing over and over. And I wanted to think up strategies for other types of businesses. So we were making plans to leave and start our own advertising business when I met John Frieda. And that was in 1988. And we actually, um, I was in England, and I was looking for a hairdresser that would do an educational program for 500 hairstylists from the United States. We were bringing to Italy. The company was bringing them to Italy to train them for three days in our products. And we were looking for a guest artist. And we hired John Frieda. And that's, and I met John in 1988. And that's pretty much where it all began. And what happened was I started consulting with him as I was thinking about leaving the company. And one thing led to another. And he had a couple of products that he had made up. And he he basically called them John Frieda Green Lotion. And he didn't have a real plan. And I started consulting with him on those products. And there's a, a store in England called Boots the Chemist. And they were interested in taking his products into 17 stores. And I con- continued consulting with him. And one day he said to me they he had an opportunity to go on TV, and people were counseling him against going on TV and hawking his products. They were saying he'd lose his credibility. And I said, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the market over there, but to me it seems like a great idea for you to go on and demonstrate the products. He did, and the rest was pretty much history. They immediately took two of the products in his line and distributed them to 1,200 stores. So he went from 17 stores to 1,200 pretty much overnight. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. And he said he needed a partner, basically. And I had been consulting with him for a a little while before that and uh, writing some copy for him and just in general business consulting. And it was a big move. I had twins that were three years old at the time. And my partner, Ann, and I, we were thinking of my business partner, working in America still, opening our advertising agency. And it was a big move to pick up and move to London and start this company over there. But we did it. Basically, we did it. The girls were three years old, and we picked up and moved and started the company in 1989 in the UK. Wow. So can you dig into a little bit about what it really took to create that partnership? Because I think that there are a lot of listeners who they're really jiving with somebody when it comes to business, and they they start seeing very clearly that they can really help each other and complement each other. What did it really take for you and John to come together and say, okay, here's my expectation Mm. and what I'm bringing to the table, here's what you're bringing to the table, and here's what we now agree on? Like, what was that process like? Well, it started when he was the guest artist and we did the show in Italy. I spent a decent amount of time with him talking about the industry, where he was. He had two salons. He had just opened a salon. And he special his salon specialized in styling in a more advanced way than we did in the US. And I had three kids, I'm mean, two kids that were three years old, and I I needed to make some money. I started to think as I was talking to him that Vidal Sassoon was the last major force in the business and he was the king of haircutting. John salons were known for their styling. 
So I started to think about it, and I said to John, I said, you know, I said, I think maybe there's an opportunity for you to do a book for the trade on styling. I said, and you could be the master of styling, as Sassoon was the master of haircutting, because every 20 years or so, the the sort of psychological profile of society changes in a way, and there was roller setting at one point, and then when women got out into the workforce, it was cut and go. That was Vidal Sassoon. And then as people got into more powerful positions, women, it was a more polished look and styling products came in. And I said, I don't know, John, I think the timing is perfect for a styling book. Would you be interested in doing that? And I think our company would be interested in it, Zotos Conair. And he said, yes. So we started to work on this book together and I would interview him and then I would write the chapters. So I got to know him and he got to know me and our aesthetic was the same. Our thought process was very, very similar. Our work ethic was very similar. So it was very clear we were on the same page about so many things. And then when we started to consult Anne and I with him on his different products, it was just very easy. It wasn't a difficult process. It wasn't, we were of similar minds. And I think that that's really important. We were very much alike in what we thought the future of the business was, where we saw opportunities, what types of hair we liked. So if we were doing a photo shoot, we were on the same page with what we thought looked good. Because very often you can be working with someone and what they think is good is not at all what you think is good. And that's a very frustrating place to be if that's your partner in business. So pretty early on, we knew we were compatible. As you guys were growing and really solidified this partnership, did you have to kind of figure out and evolve as far as what your roles were and what you guys really did? Or did you ever have any friction? Or was it always just because you had that foundation of compatibility? <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that the that the former is already the truth <laughs> with the latter. <laughs> what were some of the practical things that you did as partners that actually made it a really successful partnership? You know, I think that it was three of us. You know, Anne was involved in it as well. And I think the thing about it was, all three of us, we were very similar in our vision for the company and in our, our aesthetic, but we had very different skills as people, very, very different. So Anne is a very strong administrator. She's creative, but she's also very strong at making things happen and dotting all the I's, as well as being very, she's very flexible. She's not rigid in any way because she has that skill. She's very flexible, she's creative, but she makes it happen. So if you have an idea, she will execute it to perfection. I was more creative, I would say. I was more the strategist, maybe, and the new product idea person. I mean, Frizzy's product pretty much came about, I mean, when I, before we even started the business with John, I'd been obsessing over Frizzy hair because I have it. And so working in the hair care business, I'd always been researching different ingredients and thought that maybe silicones could make a difference with my hair type. So when I did meet John and he had a handful of his own products, I said, one thing I'd really like to do, and I would like to make it a priority, is I have an idea for a frizz product. Do you have a chemist? Because I think that maybe there's something to the silicone base. And he said, sure. And we worked together to come up with that product. And that came out of my own problem. And basically everything we did as a company, because we were a professional company, at the heart of it was John Frieda Salons. And John Frieda was the name and the face. 
we believed that everything had to be very credible and be in sync with that professional heritage. So we were very much a problem solution. And the first problem we identified was, you know, out of selfish reasons, I had the hair type. I thought maybe I had some ingredients that would work. They turned out to make a real difference. And that's how it started. And John, and and as I was saying how the partnership worked, John is very articulate, very talented hairdressers, very, very, very smart. And when you don't have money at all, PR is very important. We didn't have money to advertise. So when I was basically thinking about abandoning the idea to start an advertising with Anne, and when John asked us to help him with his product line and become his partner, it took a lot of soul searching to abandon the one idea that we had been thinking about for about a year and a half, and also to pick up and move to London. A lot of it had to do with analyzing how the three of us would fit together and what were John's strengths and could we market John? Because we had to think about somebody that could be the front person for the brand because we were no one knew who we were. We had absolutely no money at all. And right from the beginning, we knew it would be very important to have someone out there that we could put on television to demonstrate a product because that's the way we would be able to move it off the shelf. And he ticked every box. I mean, he is just very smart, like I said, very articulate, very photogenic, and it worked perfectly for the three of us. You met each other in 1988, and I think that this was in 1989 that you guys actually decided to come together, right? Yeah, we moved to London, Anne and I, in 89. So now the three musketeers are over in <laughs> London, really with zero, you know, zero budget, really, really kind of making zero it happen. Zero budget. How, mm-hmm. how big did the company grow during its tenure? How big in revenue? How big in different amounts of products? Well, we sold the company in 2002, and our sales out at that point were about $165 million. Wow. Wow. So starting from zero to all the way to $165 million. So what were some of the major things that you I, – I, look, I know that that story in and of itself is a long conversation, but just mm-hmm. if you could choose one or two things that you would really contribute that success to, what do you think it is? I think for us always it was about finding a hole in the marketplace. So with everything we've launched, including with our new company now – Every single product, there was a real need for it that wasn't being addressed by any other company. So having a product for a problem hair type like Frizzies with nothing else in the market, we knew that if we could really make a formula that made a difference, we could win. But we're never ingredient-led. Like so many companies are ingredient-led. So the chemist might find something that they say is great for your hair, And then you have to figure out who your audience is and exactly how to communicate that. We were never, the ingredients never came first, really. The problem came first. So it was me with this problem and then reading about ingredients and thinking, I think that maybe this could work for this reason. Let me talk to a chemist. So I think one of the, I think key actually to our success was finding that opportunity that whole and I call them blinding glimpses of the obvious because after the fact it seems like why wasn't there a product for frizzy hair before why wasn't there a line of styling products for frizzy hair because when we launched our styling products the only styling products on the market were to add body to the hair because basically companies and I have worked for them felt that people that had trouble styling their hair were people that didn't have body 
So all of the styling products added body. They had alcohol and they had resins in them. The worst thing you could do was put those type of styling products on my hair type. So we then developed a line of styling products without alcohol that wouldn't make the hair bigger, but that would control the hair and make it smoother. There was nothing like that on the market. So it was just an easier route to take. We had a ready-made audience. We had products that really worked, and we knew that if we could get John on TV, show the demonstrations on TV, they could see the results, the consumer could see the results, and as long as the products were what we said they were, which they were, we could do this. That's how we felt, that we, we've got this. So let's fast forward a little bit to 2002. You sold the company in 2002. Can you walk yeah. us through kind of the process for why you guys decided to sell, how that actually came about, and what it actually took to sell the company? Mm. We weren't planning on selling. You know, over the years, we had different companies come to us interested in buying us early on, probably maybe even five years in. And we were just not ready, and we entertained it, to be honest. We sometimes entertained it because we were afraid that the company would knock us off all the sooner. (laughs) But if they thought they were purchasing us, then maybe we could stave them off a little bit, hold them off. So sometimes we entertained the the company just out of self-preservation. But as we, in the 10th and 11th and 12th year, people were coming to us with very serious offers that we really had to consider. We didn't, we weren't actively looking. We didn't put it out there. We had many, many plans for the future. Uh, It was still young to us, 12 years. We were just going into other countries. We were in, we had been in England from the beginning and we had been in Australia, but we were just gone into France. We opened an office in France, which was great. We had distribution in Germany. We were really just starting to expand in a major way when we got some a really serious offer. And what we felt for our families, we had to entertain it. But the first offer, it was very, I mean, it was $300 million, the first offer. I'll written out there, you can see it, but our whole story. And I still looked at John and I said, you know, I just don't think it's worth it. I said, we still have so much to do. And I said, let's tell them no. This is after months of talking to them. And he agreed and we said no in the next day or the two days later they came back with 450 and I looked at John and I said you know it would be irresponsible to our families not to sell at this point I felt we basically had to do it it was a very bittersweet moment it wasn't something that we planned it it just happened now, in the selling of the company and you, you guys agreeing to do that, was there any, like, were you kept on for a certain amount of time or what was the agreement that they had? The agreement was we had a non-compete for five years. And also John couldn't use his name for any kind of product after we sold. John had to stay on for five years. I don't know, maybe it was three, I can't remember. But he did stay on for several years maybe even longer than five, where he did some PR for the company and personal appearances, mostly press events, that kind of thing. And I did about a little over six months consulting with them. I didn't want to stay on because I just felt it it was a different time. We did our thing. We ran the company the way we wanted to. 
they had their own way of doing things, which was very successful for them, was very different than the way we did things. And it it would have been hard to come from one culture and move into something that's very different. And I just felt six months, help the transition, and then move on to something else. And so where did you go after that? Let's let's really walk through. So you've just had a very successful sell of this company, but mm-hmm. maybe you weren't like exactly ready to, to really let it go because no. it was such a sudden mm-hmm. and big thing. So we're going to get into Federici brands, but you have since created your own brand of hair care products. But give us a step-by-step of what happened between that time and what your current company is. Okay. Well, to be honest, right after we sold, I think all of us were in a little bit uh, it was sort of post-traumatic stress on a very mild <laughs> level because this was your baby. You had been working 24-7 on this for years, and it was a really fun ride. It really was. It was just exciting to keep growing and growing and being more valuable to stores like Walgreens and CVS than the big companies like L'Oreal and P&G. We were more profitable per square inch. That was fun. Our products were winning awards. And it was very exciting. And it was exciting to us that we were making a difference to the consumer. That I I have to say one of the best feelings was with Frizzies, we had massive file cabinets full of letters from consumers saying how the product changed their lives, saying how it made such a difference. A grandmother writing about her grandchild on how she was made fun of at school and they just wanted to thank us for frizzy frizzy someone made a um copper mold of a frizzy's bottle to make chocolate candies with and sent it to john i mean we had letters from mayors we had a poem written by a mayor of some small town in the midwest that was three pages long about i mean it was unbelievable and all of that makes Something that in some ways the beauty business seems a bit superficial, but when you feel like you actually can make a difference, it's more of a reward in some ways than seeing your product. I mean, it's great to have your product ranked number one and number three and whatever, you know, out of 3,000, but it is equally as rewarding to get all of those letters. So it was very, very difficult to have had such a positive experience and see your vision come to fruition so successfully year after year and then all of a sudden to have nothing and so many of my family and john's family worked for the company which was also traumatic that we had to sort of pull the rug out i mean obviously we took care of everybody but still we were working together on a daily basis it was very tough it was really very tough and we were floundering and my daughters at the time were 16, and they were in our commercials. I don't know if you remember the Sheer Blonde commercials, but my twins were always singers, and they sang in the Sheer Blonde commercial, and they had had a lot of interest in them in the music business, and my husband plays guitar and is a singer, and I've always had an interest in it, and John's brother had music studios in London, and I don't know, we just wound up in the music business, believe it or not. For five years after we sold the hair care business, we signed, I don't know if Tayo Cruz, I don't know if you know Tayo Cruz, he's a British artist and he's had some number one hits here. Anyway, we were in that for five years while we were trying to think about how to move forward. And we were still working with our chemists, still doing products. And John's ex-wife, Lulu, who's a very, very, very famous singer in England, and she's had her own TV shows and she was in the process of putting out a new album 
of original work. And we had been working with her, developing skincare products, not to sell, but just for her to use and for me to use. We're the same age. And when we just didn't, couldn't find anything on the market, we would go to Joe, our chemist, and say, Joe, this moisturizer is no longer, we've paid $150 for this, $200 for this. This is what's happening. This isn't working. What can we do? This is the result that we want. So we had little, maybe five little pots of different products that we carried around and some of the other people in the company carried around with us. And at that time, when Lou came out with her album and she was starting to get press on it, all the press was talking about what she looked like, how young she looked over and over again, frustrating her to no end. She would call me complaining. After like five times, the penny dropped. And I said, Lou, if all of these magazines want to write about how good you look, maybe we should market these products that we've been using for ages. So she said, well, I don't know the first thing about it. I said, I know, but we do. I said, we could market them. I said, we could market them. We could package them. You're great on television. We could take it a different way. We could go to QVC. I said, but if you rarely get an opportunity where people want to find out what you're using all the time. I said, so maybe, you know, there's a reason why this keeps happening over and over. So long story short, we put together a product, skincare product line called Time Bomb, and Lou went on TV in the UK and to a great success. So we were in the music business and doing this skincare range while we couldn't compete. At the same time, we were had been working on a makeup line, and we had actually been working on that while we were at John Frieda because we had so much shelf space for hair care that, and I thought, I don't know what else we can do in hair care. We should be thinking about other opportunities. And we developed a makeup range called My Face that we launched in the UK in 2008. And talk about falling on your behind. Okay, It was, <laughs> oh my God. What happened? Well, I mean, you name it. And just like everything that could go right went right for us with Frizzies and Sheer Blonde. I mean, it just went from strength to strength and everything just seemed to be going our way. Everything went wrong. I mean... We made so many mistakes. Well, first of all, we launched it in October of 2008 when the economy crashed, mm. which was a disaster. And we only were in 88 stores. We were supposed to be rolling out to 350 in April, and that never took place because Boots didn't do the rollout. For two years, we were languishing, all of our stock languishing. We then also, it wasn't our expertise, so our powders could last someone for 20 years. They would buy one and they would have it for the rest of their lives. I mean, we just made mistakes on that range. But the biggest problem was we had amazing foundation, which to this day we still sell and we get requests from makeup artists everywhere. But it was just a fiasco. I mean, we weren't just not meant to be launching it is all I can say. Because everything that could go wrong went wrong along the way. And then, and then we had been working on what we have launched just recently is Color Wow Root Cover Up, which is a line for color treated hair, and in particular, a product that covers either gray roots or dark regrowth. And I'm assuming, obviously, that that's after your non compete is up, right? Yes, it, we Got just it. <laughs> did it about a year, a, a little over a year ago. Been working on it for three years because basically, I said I don't want to go back into hair care unless 
we're coming back with something major. You don't want to leave on a high and then come back in and, and not do something equally, hopefully, as good as you had in the past. And when we were able to really crack this formula for roots, which took us a very, very long time, I said, this is, I think this is great. We need to do this. And we launched it a little over a year ago. Wow. So give us a little bit of kind of what's been going on with the launch of that product. Number one, let's start with you took all this time to really figure out exactly what that product is. How did you decide on like packaging? Were there any strategies that you used for packaging? And then we can talk about like your initial kind of launch and marketing strategy. Uh, Yeah, because it's a powder, we needed to put it in a compact with a mirror. So it looks very, it looks very different from most of the root touchers out there are either liquids that are in a typical hair coloring type of packaging or they for just roots that could be mascara wands or crayons that are waxy. There's never been a, a product like ours that's been marketed for roots before. So it kind of lent itself to a compact type of, a, of packaging with a brush. But the name is always important to us. And actually, my sister came up with the name Color Wow. And it was because basically every time we did a demo on somebody, to this day, the first thing they do is when they see the how it covers so easily. And you literally cannot tell whether or not, and I, I mean, I mean, you really cannot tell whether the product, it's the product or the person's hair. Wow. At all. It blends to perfection, and it stays on when you swim. And the minute you see it, and you can see um, somebody with dark uh, regrowth, and you highlight it, and you put the blonde over it without peroxide, without anything, ammonia. And the first word somebody says is, wow. That's the th- thing that everybody, you do it, and the first word out of somebody's mouth is, wow. So she said, we have to call it this because it's natural. So she named it. It wasn't such a strategy for that. Other, It was pretty obvious. But I think the hardest part in launching this was that there were so many root cover-ups that came before ours that really didn't have such acceptance or great reputation, really, or much credibility. I think we were fighting what people tended to think about root cover-ups. They weren't effective, really. They really weren't. And so people just thought, well, here's another root cover-up. And when we were going to market this and we were going to sell it in, at Ulta and they were going to give us an end cap, I said, we cannot be having our header card say something like goodbye roots or kiss your roots goodbye or any of those typical end benefit type of lines. I said, because they're just going to lump us in with all of the other ones that they're not happy with. Clearly, consumers weren't happy with what was out there or you wouldn't see our office the people in our office going around with gray roots. If there was something out there that people liked and was working, you wouldn't see anybody with gray roots out there. So I said, we can't be lumped in with these other products because they just don't have a good reputation, good credibility factor. So I kept trying to talk to the art department and saying, you know what, it's, it's kind of like there were phones and then there was the iPhone. It's that kind of jump in technology. So I said, that's what we have to convey somehow. I'm, I don't know how to do it, but that's the thought process. You know, we've got to take ourselves way away from what's already been out there. And the art department came back with the line, which I thought was just perfect, and it really worked for us. A big picture of our compact opened up, and it said, the next handheld device to change your life. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so good. I just laughed. That's really good. When, yeah. 
they brought it in because they had, it was literally months and I thought they were going to kill me because they keep bringing in these, and I go, it's just nothing. I, it doesn't mean anything to me. This could be anybody's product. I said, we've got to really make the consumer realize this is different. This is not the same old, same old. I said, we need a line that conveys that. When they came in with that after months, I mean, they were like practically doing cartwheels. Finally, <laughs> like, Thank finally, God, you know, she Bruce. finally said okay. And I said, not only do I say okay, I said you guys are so smart. That is really good, and it really worked for us. What sort of marketing techniques have you been doing out there in the market this past year that have really made an impact? That where you have seen that they, it's been very effective. I think for us, what works the best are demos. I mean, with Frizzies, it was the demos. With some of the other styling products with, with under the Frizzies brand, they were the demos going on TV. And what we did was we have worked with Ken Pavis. He's done demos on TV. We also ran, put together a very inexpensive commercial using that iPhone analogy, actually, in the very beginning of it, and then showing the demos, which has been unbelievably successful with a very low budget spend. We go city by city, very little spend. When your commercial is right, you really don't need to spend a lot of money. When it, when the consumer recognizes that I need that and that really looks like it works, it sells itself. It absolutely sells itself and you don't need a big spend at all. What I love that you're pointing to is the idea, like throughout this entire conversation, you really keep on pointing back to demonstration, demonstration, demonstration. Let my eyes see what the potential of this product is and let it see what it can really do. And it's worked for you over and over again. Yeah. And that's why things like, you know, the HSN and QVC, that's why those products are so successful there because it's a it's a great demo. So I, I love that you stick to that and, and especially in the products business and in a, in a business that's so saturated with other stuff, you have to show literally what the difference is. Yeah, I mean, I think it is very, very hard for a small player to come in to a market where you've got really it's almost like a duopoly P&G and L'Oreal I know there are other big players Unilever but with all of their money I mean they might spend 150 million dollars on a product launch you cannot compete with that there is no way that you're advertising for the most part like I, I always say we could have never launched Pantene Pro V if we had put the same bottle that they had that plastic bottle with the word Pro V on the shelves with our budget we would have failed within I don't even know how many months. No one would have a clue what Pro-V meant. No one, we had no advertising money to sell it. I don't know, you know, for healthy, shiny hair, which many, many products say for healthy, shiny hair. We, wouldn't, we would have failed. With John, we always knew we had to play the game a different way, our way. We couldn't play the same game as the big players that were in there and even have a chance of succeeding at all. So we had to find what was unique to us, which was in a way that we could make sure that we could reach the consumer without spending a lot of money. So let's talk about your growth just in this past year. You now have like a $20 million budget already. So you're definitely right. getting out there. How are you guys making sales? And what, like, what is your, where are you most popular in the marketplace? Are you doing online sales? Are you in the supermarkets? You know, where are you and how are you actually no, bringing just, in revenue? Well, when you go to QVC, you are limited as where you can sell. So if you want to sell at QVC, they don't want you to sell 
at the drugstores of Walgreens, certainly not Walmarts and Targets, but they're fine with places like Ulta, salons, uh, Sephora. They're fine with things like that. So initially we just went to QVC because we just thought that this product was perfect for that and Ulta. And that's and, and salons. Got it. And that really has just made a, just a huge impact huge. already. Unbelievable. I mean, it does help when you do have a product. And this is what I just emphasize so much with anybody that's starting a business. If you really have something, and there are so many blinding glimpses of the obvious. You know, it's after the fact, it's like, why didn't I think of that? That's obvious. There are opportunities there that the bigger players don't see. You know, they do business in a completely different way. So there are opportunities out there. And for, but I just think you need to have a way to sell them in a very compelling way to the consumer without advertising. So we use on-shelf before and afters because your shelf position is always your advertising when you don't have money. So if your product says what it does, if you can convince to sort of put a displayer in there with a before and after picture, which we did, that is worth so much money and it doesn't really cost you anything. It's your advertising right there. You're capturing the consumer that is interested as they're walking down the aisle. How did you guys get in the door at QVC? Just cold calling. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's how we did everything. Even with John Frieda originally into the drugstores, I knew nothing about retail in either country, the U.S. or the U.K. I was more in the trade before I started with John. I knew I didn't want to do the trade again, wanted to go to retail, but we knew nothing. We just cold called and begged (laughs) pretty much to get in the door. And we got in the door at Eckerd Drug was our first one. And literally, I didn't even know what the buyer was talking about. I think John is probably thinking, oh, my God, I have this American in here. I think she knows everything. Meanwhile, I didn't know one thing he was talking about. He was talking about BOGOs, you know, buy one, get one. I didn't know what that was at the time, (laughs) a BOGO. And they're saying, well, you know, what are you going to do about BOGOs? And I said, well, you know, I don't really know what a BOGO is. As John is sitting next to me thinking, she probably knows. I don't know. And I said, but if it costs any money, we don't have it. And then he'd go, well, will you do TS?" The temporary price reductions, TPRs, I, and I didn't know what a TPR was. I said, well, if we don't cost money, we don't have it. <laughs> and it was like, it, that's how the meeting went. And I said, but I promise you, you're only committing to a small amount of shelf space. It's our life. I have twin daughters. Wow. If we don't sell this, we uh, there's nothing left. You have many products in here that don't work. You know, that you don't work, they're out, you face them out, someone else comes in. If we don't work... It's history for us. It's a real problem. We will make sure that this sells. Our lives depend on it. And the guy took a chance on us. We were wow. so desperate. I think we were just so pathetic, probably, Tim. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's a great story because it shows just the passion that you have. And you're. I think every small business does that. And they have to do that. You know, you have to say, this is my life. Everything that I do is to make sure that this things succeeds and and that's what differentiates you so you know that's awesome you have to I mean you really do it because your life does depend on it when you it's a risk you know I left a job and so did Anne that will you know it's high paying job and you have to make it work so using that as a jumping point what have you done in those moments that have been 
super tough for you like just really low moments and you know that you have to make it work but you you just have those moments that everything is crumbling or nothing's working out or you just feel really low can you you know talk about one of those moments and what you did to get through it well we had one it was really bad for Anne I remember but for some reason I don't know why I had a very positive attitude through most of the John Frieda days. There was once when a distributor, we were really worried. We had a lot of money that they owed us. And I started to worry about how solvent they were. And they were our distributor for a few years. We didn't have accounts, our own independent accounts with these, with all the different stores they did. We weren't set up to sell to them. So if this distributor went under, it would be very, very bad for us. And I, there were little signs that made me start thinking about it. And long story short, they did go under. And it was what I call war room time. We go to the war room. And literally, we go into a conference room. And we basically, there's a handful of us, including our head of sales. We are in there like focused, laser focused, you know, and until we come out with a plan which we came out with a few, sometimes out of these really terrible things. I mean, we had a hiccup. We didn't get paid quite a bit of money, but we managed to make a deal with somebody else, which was sort of unheard of in the industry where they paid to get our line. So it made us whole again. But that was just a completely different way of thinking at the time. And we set up individual, most of the country we set up on our own. My sister was running three computers. I mean, literally, she was running from office to office trying to get hold of all of the stock to make sense of where everything was, to set up our own reference numbers or whatever they're called with every one of our accounts. We had to become a vendor of record. And there was all sorts of paperwork. It was hell, actually, for a few months. But everybody just banded together. And by sheer will and strategy and a lot of hours and blood, sweat, and tears, you get there. You you will overcome it. There's a where, where there's a will, there's a way. I really, most of the time, most of the time. Gail, you strike me as somebody who definitely like takes time to make sure that you are being strategic about your company and not just sort of getting into the day-to-day and getting your fingers dirty with everything, although we all do that, of course. But knowing that, you know, you really take time to kind of evolve yourself and help educate yourself about how you can be better as a businesswoman, Have there been any books that you have read that really have made a profound impact on how you have run your companies? That's so funny. I do believe, I'm a firm believer in not reinventing the wheel. And I tell everybody, I think that they should, like right now on the social media side, I'm trying to find the perfect book. But over the years, absolutely. I remember assigning sections of a Jack Welsh book, The GE Way, and Bill Gates' Business at the Speed of Thought. I read them and learned from them. And sometimes you're actually doing what he's saying, but he might uh, have a catchphrase for it that's simple. You're doing it, but he's validating what you're saying by from his experience, and he might have just some simple way of putting something that you haven't articulated as well to your staff. So I do totally believe in that. I mean, I've read recently, I'm trying to think, just in, I mean, I love the Steve Jobs book. I read The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos, and Delivering Happiness, Zappos, uh, Tony Shea. I also read a lot of biographies about 
leaders. You know, I, I really like nonfiction because everybody has a tough time. And I get inspired. I mean, I, I'm not one to love to speak publicly. I find it sales meetings. I'm fine, but I'm more of a behind the scenes person. I prefer the strategy and really strategy. That's what, what I really like. And a- analyzing, analyzing numbers, analyzing the competition and coming up with our plan moving forward. I love to be behind the scenes. Sometimes I can't be. And when I'm thinking about, okay, I'm going to have to do this. Sometimes I get a lot from reading books about different leaders who you think are incredible people, but they have their own worries. They have their own issues that I can relate to and get inspired by. So I love reading nonfiction. I love reading books about business. Well, every single one of those are a phenomenal book that you just mentioned. They're all very, very good. Gail, I really want to bring this conversation to a close by asking you about your vision. Where are you going from here? You've already had very successful companies in the past. The one that you're building right now is just growing like gangbusters. Where do you want to go from here? I think that I'm always going to be about identifying. We have different issues that we would love to be able to fix, to bring the, to the consumer that I can't obviously talk about right now for competitive reasons. But I like solving problems, and, and I'm probably doing that for quite a while, I think, as long as we can crack them. But there's a few on our plate that I think that may be um, more close. So we'll probably be doing the same thing because I, I like it. That's what I get enjoyment from. And I'm working with my family, and I'm working with friends that have helped grow the other businesses. And we're a real strong team, and we like working together, and it's a great way to spend your time. I could like a little more time off right now, though. It's been insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always so great. I don't want to say it's always so great. Yep. Well, you're in like the, the beginning building stages all over again, you know? Oh, so. my God. I know. It gets a little rough, but worth it in the end, hopefully. Gail, I really want to thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your story. You're just such a great example of somebody who's super passionate about really fulfilling the need of a marketplace. This has probably been one of the most focused interviews that has really brought that component out, which I really appreciate. And Thank you so much. Yeah, and I just really appreciate you being so honest about all the different strategies that you've used and the, the, the things that you're doing now. And just congratulations on the success that you've had. And I know you're going to continue to have. And Thank you so much for sharing your story. Well, thank you so much. I really think what you're doing is incredible. I think everybody needs guidance from anybody. If somebody picks up something from this, uh, you know, I'm so happy to share. And I'm going to be listening to the podcast, and I'm I'm sure I can learn a lot from the other people that are on your show. (laughs) We all can learn from each other. That's the whole premise. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Well, thanks so much, Gail. Thank you so much. Today's show notes are at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 60. My biggest takeaway from Gail was the fact that she led with the gap in the marketplace, which basically means that before she did anything, before she came up with the, the concept or the ingredients for whatever product she was doing, she was looking for where there was a gap. She was looking for what was actually truly needed out there and was not there And it would be very obvious that it was fulfilling that need. And she led all of her product creation that way. And then I really love the fact that she was so, um, you know, she really talked about what it truly meant to demonstrate something, to actually visually see what the product does and how powerful that really is. And she said that all throughout her experiences. So 
She was wonderful. She was an absolute delight. I totally loved her and um, I hope you got a lot of great little nuggets of wisdom from her. Thank you so much for being on the show here with me today. I will see you on the next episode.